0: I'm Nick Law and you're listening to the Hop Forward podcast getting you ahead in the brewing and beer business Hop Forward is a weekly podcast dedicated to the craft beer industry featuring interviews discussions and stories from the whole brewing supply chain from grain to glass so grab yourself a glass pour yourself a beer and get ready to hop forward in the brewing and beer business oh, Beer friend, and welcome to a holy edition of the Hop Forward podcast. And that, my friends, is how you start a beer podcast. Any beer podcast that doesn't start like that, you have to ask the question: Is it really worth listening to? <laughs> so, yes, this week we're looking at monasticism and brewing like a monk with none other than acclaimed beer author Stan. Hieronymous. Uh, Stan's authored many books, including For the Love of Hops, Brewing with Wheat, Brewing Local, and the subject of today's podcast, you guessed it, Brewing Like a Monk. Not long after I started Emmanuel's, a good friend of mine, Andy, suggested that my official title within the business should be Brewing Bolding Modern Monk, which has stuck ever since. As many of you will know, I left the mega church to start a microbrewery, and while These days, the only thing I will try to force down your throat is beer, not my religion. I can't help but feel a spiritual connection to the monks who oversee the making of beer in their monasteries, even to this day. I usually feel this connection more acutely when I visit Northumberland most summers. I've probably talked about this on the podcast before. It's like there's a pull on my soul to that part of the country. I'll often sit down overlooking the North Sea with a beer in hand on a warm summer's evening, when we're in that part of the world and feel a connection to the divine through the beer I'm tasting and the coastal surroundings. You know, I can pitch myself with a small brewery in that neck of the woods, brewing Abbey-style beers, barrel Sours, Saisons, and anything remotely rustic that isn't dry-hopped within an inch of its life and just be, you know, just simply be. And then the pressures of daily modern life bring me back down to earth with a bump as I'm caught up in social media marketing, print deadlines, consulting, and all the other fun, fast-paced things I'm involved in. But that yearning, my oldest and truest prayers, if you will, that's what I long for. To just slow down and let fermentation and conditioning take its course and to be at one with the land. I think that's what I taste when I drink beers such as Westermel, Chimay, Rocheford and Oval. Well, that and a bloody good beer. In fact, while we're talking about monks and beer, it was literally around this time last year when I came back from the seaside town of Whitby with a bottle of Tint Meadow in hand and watched a programme on BBC4 about the brewing and brethren at Mount St. Bernard in Leicestershire. And I just felt like... There was something about that that was so extraordinary and special. It really inspired me. Not just the brewing, but their contemplative way of life. There's something about paying close attention to what you're making, whether it's beer, honey, mead, bread, chairs, whatever it is, and letting that be like an act of worship, whatever that means to you. Again, though, through the pressures of modern life and living in a capitalist society, It often derails our desire to slow down and not strive to satisfy the bank or even our self-inflated egos. Perhaps brewing like a monk encapsulates something other, something that we can't grasp or is just out of reach. Or perhaps it's just about making some really good, world-renowned, sought-after strong beers. Either way, it was a pleasure to talk to Stan Hieronymus about his writings, about some of the methods of brewing monastically and even dispelling some of the myths, which as you've just heard me waxing lyrical, I've probably bought into as much as the next person when it comes to monks and brewing. So before we crack open today's main topic of discussion, here's a few other things from friends of Hot Forward that I'd like to make you aware of. (laughs) On Monday, I had the privilege of joining Kevin and Luke from Nigeria's first craft brewery in, wait for it, Manchester, not Abuja. Uh, Kevin is the co-founder of Bature Brewery. You'll have heard him on the podcast before. I think it was sometime before Christmas. So go check that out. It was a really good episode and he's an expat that's lived in Nigeria for the past 12 years. And he came over to the UK on business and to visit family. And whilst here, we organized a visit to Marble Beers in Manchester, where we got to look around the brewery and hang out with Joe in the Marble Arch, which is just like one of the greatest pubs of all time. Uh, So firstly, I want to say huge thanks to Carl from the brewery for helping set that up. I'm going to play a short clip of us tasting an outrageously good beer. Uh, it's a beer called Black Gold that has won the African Beer Cup on several occasions. Uh, coming in at a hefty 8%, this coffee style is just absolutely exceptional. So let me play this clip and then I'm going to share with you an exciting opportunity for the adventurous amongst us. Um,
1: so we don't have much option in Nigeria in terms of different coffee beans. and Because we do like want to use local beans, there's this brand called Calde and I think they're actually now selling in the UK. So there, she's from uh, Kenya, and then he's Nigerian, and they're married, and um, they found these Nigerian beans, the same beans that we used in our very first batch, there was a Mambila Plateau, it's like up in the mountains in Joss, so we first did the 500 grams, we ground the coffee ourselves and just threw it in and see what happened, then over, after we didn't have any more, we went not hiking again, so we just started using other coffees and it really changed the beer, like a lot. So now we went back to working with Caldi, who roast the beans fresh and then they then basically send them over to us. So on a brew day, ideally, we should be getting freshly roasted beans and um, doesn't always happen, but that's the goal. So you
0: put beans in? Three.
1: Yeah, so we grind them and then we throw them in the boil and then we also dry hook with uh, the coffee as well. So to we get them more of a yeah. So yeah, we treat them whole, and then steep and then remove when steeped and yeah the whirlpool's just for hygiene yeah and we actually we actually lose a lot but it's because we're getting the coffee yeah very fresh roasted and the i always pronounce it wrong The we're trying to incorporate the shell is it the, or the we try and use that as and when we can get it depending on how fresh stuff is and that i'm like oh, I have that before it goes anywhere near the coffee <laughs> like, uh, anywhere near the, but yeah um <laughs> So with using sorghum as well, we like, find it is very sweet and doesn't ferment as well. So that's why um, the real challenge has been retaining head retention, because sorghum doesn't retain heads. So that's why we've always naturally blended it with barley, but I find in the stout it basically balances out the, like, the acidity of the coffee and it's a great brew day because you get the sorghum and once it's all molted, really sweet, just uh, basically add a bit on top of our porridge. I mean, you make it loads, and I know. Yes, uh, guinea corn, guinea corn. Right. So, and there's two. There's white and red, guinea corn. But we, we can't malt it. We can't. Um, we, we don't have a cooker, so we work with a company out in uh, Kuta which is on on a good day two hours and a bad day six hours away, in traffic. So they basically, they they um, they make it into a setup for us. So basically, we get is a fresh extract. For that and then otherwise we'd cook it ourselves and throw it in the mash, but we can't do that. So they, they do that for us and then we blend it with the barley or the wheat or whatever it's holding. We'll it's in the same grass family as yeah. Yeah, wheat, barley, yeah, right, right. long rooting for I guess. Yeah. So we've got we're, we're to defend the crown, so we're just about to ship another uh, batch to Cape Town for the African Year so. Cup. Um, so that's going to go on the 20th of April and then uh, I'll go to Cape Town on the 14th, hopefully, to retain retain the award, but um, last year, it didn't happen in 2020, in 2021 it was it was online um, and because there's such a delay in our internet that we'd won the award and Bio or a head brewer was just sitting looking at the camera and it like went to him and he (laughs) said so cool (laughs) so cool and then it went away from him again and then it's like so well done then he then he starts going what happened and then he's like oh yeah then it goes back to him again Um, but we also won the African celebration award for the use of African based ingredients for their coffee and sorghum so that's up behind the bar
0: I was hoping from this recording which is quite ad hoc to capture my initial reaction to this beer. And I do remember talking about it at at length, but it must have been before I hit record because this is all you get from me in the actual recording. It's it's, it's very good. It's a very, very, very good beer. It's very good. It's a very, very good beer. (laughs) Hard to imagine that I've judged at national competitions, isn't it, with feedback like that. It's not every day you get to try a beer that's come all the way from Nigeria. So I thought I'd do you all a favor by doing a tasting on the actual podcast. So I've got it with me here. This is like the only can I have of this. So I have to make this one count. So got my glass, got my beer lined up. And let's crack it open and let's talk about it. Beautiful aroma, coffee instantly. So I'm going to describe it to you naturally, pouring a very thick black colour with a nice tan head. Everything you'd expect from an imperial stout. Let's give it a a good sniff. Yeah, I mean, it just smells really inviting. Do you know, I've got some neighbours actually where you'll walk past their house in the morning and they've got fresh coffee on and you get a waff of it when you walk past their extractor fan and it smells just like that. It's that freshly brewed coffee aroma. I mean, let's just taste it, shall we? I say we, I'll taste it. You can do the listening. Oh, yeah. I can see why that's won the African Beer Cup. I mean, and Africa's a big continent. <laughs> that's amazing. Uh, wow. I'm, I feel a bit speechless, really. It's such a good beer. I mean, that balance of sweetness against the acidity of the coffee is perfect. And I say this in this recording, but you can't really hear it, unfortunately. Uh, Me, Luke, Kevin, and Joe from Marble talk about coffee-infused beers and how actually I tend to find that there's a lot out there that are really quite acidic and they're not well-balanced against the addition of like lactose, for example, to, to give it that sweetness. But this is just spot on. It's rich, it's it's creamy, but there's no lactose in it. And everything just sits right with it. You can see how drinkable for 8%, it is 8% that's us open the can, 8%, yeah. An 8% Imperial coffee stout. It it's so insanely drinkable. That is just special. I'd, uh, I'd tell you where to go and i buy it, but unless you live in Nigeria at the moment, you can't. But fingers crossed, it'll be coming to a bottle shop or a bar near you soon, hopefully. So if you're looking for your next adventure in beer, get a load of this. Bature Brewery are looking for an experienced brewer willing to take on a three to six month placement at the frontier of the craft beer market in Nigeria. Just to give you some context, the Nigerian craft beer market is probably five to 10 years behind the UK and other places in the world. So there are people discovering IPAs for the first time. Just cast your mind back to when you discovered the first like IPA or that first beer that made you sit up and go, wow, what is this? This is amazing. People are having those experiences right now in Nigeria. The role is to provide mentorship to the existing brew team and head of production in key areas such as brew scheduling, SOP development and compliance, quality control and packaging and general brew house activity. offering accommodation on site, return flights and a visa. It's $2,000 or £1,500 depending on where in the world you listen to this, Uh, a month salary, a food allowance package, unlimited beer, naturally, Uh, working with a great team and obviously a unique experience. The start date is in June this year, 2022. So if that sounds like the adventure of a lifetime, contact co-founder Kevin Conroy with a brief covering note and your CV to kevin at baturebrewery.com that's kevin at b-a-t-u-r-e brewery.com and they will take it from there so let's get into today's topic of conversation brew like a monk with stan hieronymus the well-known beer author and renowned home brewer before we do here's a little bit more about hop forward and how we can help you get ahead in the brewing and beer business Not only is Hot Forward a brewing industry dedicated podcast, but we also provide creative media solutions and consultancy for companies and people who are looking to get ahead in the brewing and beer business. Hot Forward works with a range of diverse enterprises from across the world of beer to provide branding and marketing consultancy, brewing and business advice, and bespoke creative solutions to help you hot rocket your way to success. Check out hotforward.beer for more info or connect with us on social media at Hot Forward Beers. For now, grab a beer and let's crack open today's discussion. Today on the Hot Forward podcast, I'm joined by Stan Hieronymus, well-known author of For the Love of Hops, Brew Like a Monk and Brewing Local. Hello. Hello. Hey, how are you? I'm all right, thank you. How are you? I I wouldn't do any good to complain, so I won't. Oh <laughs> well, there you go. <laughs> how's how's life in Colorado?
2: Well, we only moved here um seven months or right. eight months ago. And and Colorado went through the longest stretch of not having snow that it's ever had, at the Denver area where we live. But but about two months ago it started snowing and um and we like the snow. Uh it's a little cold here today, but uh, it'll warm up over the weekend. Yeah. So
0: Where were you before? Uh, <laughs>
2: when I wrote "Brew Like a Monk," we lived in uh, New Mexico in the north, northern part, near Albuquerque, which is a large yep. city. Actually, in a small, in a village that had no uh, traffic lights. Uh, when I started for the love of pop, still lived in New Mexico. When I finished it, we lived in St. Louis. Uh, Oh, in that interim, I also wrote Brewing with Wheat, um, and then did For the Love of Hops. Uh, Then we moved from St. Louis to Atlanta, Georgia, which is, and uh, I'd written Brewing Local in St. Louis as well. Uh, Then we lived in Atlanta for three and a half years, and then we moved here. My wife's an archivist. um,
0: Oh, right, okay.
2: and, And so... It, at at the time, there just were not good archiving jobs in New Mexico. That's when we moved to St. Louis. Mm. Uh, then a position open at the Jimmy Carter Library. Uh, presidential libraries are are really cool places to work. Um, but we always wanted to get back to the Mountain States, and that's where we are now.
0: Right. Awesome. I'm sure loads of our listeners will already be well acquainted with your works, um, but can, can you, for anyone that isn't, can you just give us a little bit of background about, um, you know, your brewing experience and um, basically what you do and, and the books you've put together? Well, I um, have worked as a, first for newspapers,
2: so I'm, so I'm a, a journalist. Yep. Um, who happened to brew beer at home and did not – really write that much about the technical side of brewing beer but business stories and about pubs and, and the uh, cultural aspects those sorts of things and sort of morphed into more technical writing and so brewers publications which published those four technical books uh ray daniels who a lot of people will yep. be familiar with uh, designing great beers yep. has since started the cicerone program which is what he does he wanted to have a kind of advisory committee that I was on and in the early aughts. And one of the things I kept telling him he needed to do was designing great beers that doesn't cover Belgian style beers. Phil Markowski, who a lot of people will know was a wonderful brewer was it, at Southampton Public House, now at Two Roads. He proposed writing a book that would cover all aspects of Belgian brewing and, and Ray recognized that Phil was also a brewer and he would not have time to get it all done. And then, then created the, the the trilogy of books, farmhouse ales, Saisons was the first one wild brews was the second one. And the third one was going to be called monk ales and Tommy Arthur from then pizza port uh, and, and about to, to start port slash Abbey brewing lost Abbey brewing Mm. uh, was going to do that. And in uh, 2004, Tommy recognized that he was thinking at that time about starting a brewery. He was laying the foundation. He didn't have time to finish the book. So uh, Ray called me up and, and said, "You know, do you have any ideas who, who might want to write the book?" And I ran through the names of a few brewers. Um, and that, then he says to me, I, "I thought you, meaning me, would want to write this book." I said, "You're crazy." For uh, basically, I, I had no interest in writing. Uh, technical stuff, particularly for homebrewers. As I as a home brewer, I know the homebrewers already think they know everything. <laughs> so they're not real receptive to, yeah. to a new approach. And, and I told them no, I have the phone, walked out, and my wife's in the kitchen, and I said, you won't you won't believe what Ray just suggested uh, that I I write the, the book about the monastery beers. And she looked at me and she said, this means we get to go to Belgium, right? <laughs> and I thought for a few minutes and I said, I guess that means I'm calling him back. And that began my writing of four Brewers Publications. And you know, we, we were gonna be in 2008, 2009, um, we were doing a lot of traveling, including in Europe. And, and Ray said, we, we'd like to have this wheat beer book. Uh, and I and recognized that I, I would be able to go to Who Garden and you know to to Schneider to Berlin Berlin or Weiss. um you know Goza was just beginning to come back at the time mm. and and then go visit the Goza breweries um so that fit in and I wrote that book and I finished that book um and this is probably more detailed than you wanted but no, no, Chrissy you. T- took over for ray and um it, because but by then he was getting ready to, he was leaving uh, the birth association to start Cicerone. And when I got back to the States, I had, I finished the wheat bear book, handed that in, and she was looking for other projects for me at the same time, there was going to be this series, uh, which w- the first book was yeast. Second book was to be water that became hops. Then you had water and malt. Yep. So it was going to be uh, you know those four books. And Matt Brindleson was going to write the hops book, which he was, I, you know, I, I know him from conferences and a variety of things and writing stories and stuff like that. And it just wasn't getting done. And he, he finally said to Christy, I can't do this at the same time she and I were talking about possible projects. So that's why I wrote For the Love of Hops. And I do happen to like hops. It's just a fascinating topic, all aspects of it, the, the agriculture um, using it in the brew house, the process, and all those sorts of things, and it, it's also turned out to be the one that is changing the most. So it's you know, quite interesting from that standpoint. Brewing local, uh, that that kind of morphed um, in a different way. Originally, somebody um, you know, some <clears throat> another advisor to her, somebody proposed a book on the indigenous beers of the United States. You know, beers that originated in the United States. And this happened at the same time um, that, which I was well aware of, that what people were using more local ingredients. So we kind of put those two things together for growing mm. old.
0: Amazing. This week I want us to tackle the topic that is particularly close to my heart um, Trappist beer and monks Um, so to give you a a bit of my background um, I I used to work for a mega church for my sins and then I saw the light one day and left the mega church start microbrewery as you do (laughs) Um, but you know I've, I've always really loved the sort of stories behind monks and brewing and all the rest of it Firstly, I have to ask, in a world of IPAs and hoppy beers and pastry stouts and crazy-fruited sours, how much room is there for Abbey-style beers? Considering they're like a world-renowned beer style, it doesn't seem like many breweries make a beeline to brew them these days. I mean, why do you think that is?
2: Consumers are deciding what's going to be brewed, ultimately. Um, For instance, um, here in... uh, Colorado the Outer Range, which is <clears throat> excuse me, um, I, I, which is two things. First of all, it's, it's a brewery that's doing very well in Colorado. Um, it is, it it sits uh, in the mountains. They they get outdoor enthusiasts or. And then skiers, so all seasons. Uh, mm. Recently, many people may, may know where Breckenridge is, well-known ski resort. They're in Frisco, only maybe 30 miles north, of, if that part north of Breckenridge, somewhat west of Denver. They're doing very well. In fact, they're going to open a brewery in France, wow. again, in in ski regions. Mm. Um, and, and the founder brewer there really loves Belgian styles and that when they opened the brewery that the thinking was that they would be focused in that way um but at the same time he'd worked with other breweries and he, and and learned the skills to make excellent uh hop forward beers sometimes hazy sometimes clean that you know they also make styles they make a full range of things you don't um that their their whip beer Belgian white beer you can get pretty regularly they make a really really nice double um what i expect in a a belgian double which is going to be highly digestible just you know superfood friendly type thing it might be the best one in the country um they don't make it all the time because you just don't have the demand for it and i i think that's the sort of challenge so lots of brewers love making these beers um and then home brewers really love making these beers so people who do it across the spectrum uh appreciate these beers a lot but it but it is a challenge for a brewery to be able to sell that that fuller range of beers
0: yeah so
2: so you know in in the united states um you've got a few small operations always hard to tell how involved the monks are there there are two breweries one just benedictine which is uh, uh, in uh, Mount Angel, in the middle of hop country in Oregon. In fact, they own land where hops are grown, they have somebody else grown, and then Spencer on the East Coast. And and so Spencer is, is a Trappist Brewery, they have the Trappist Seal. So they do everything, every beer that has a Trappist Seal is approved by um, the Trappist organization. And in fact, they they fill out 17 pages of paperwork, <clears throat> and they'll send the <clears throat> um, beers over to Belgium where it's assessed. So wow. if if it isn't a high high enough quality, then you're you're not doing it. And so their their first beer, and they were going to make a single beer for the first three years, but you know American audience expects more. So they brew some other beers that may or. May not get a Trappist seal. They brew a Pilsner and that has the Trappist seal, but they also brew an IPA, um, which they put in cans, mm. 16 ounce cans. Um, and they do a small batch, only 50 barrels, <clears throat> of a pumpkin beer because in the season, you know, as soon as they put beers in cans and an IPA in cans, uh, immediately the distributor selling their beer said, I think you can do a pumpkin beer because we can sell that pumpkin beer.
0: Can I can I just um, ask a question about this? Because I'm interested in that because it, it kind of ties into the next question I had about um, sure. the differences between a Trappist brewery and like an abbey, a, a brewery that makes abbey beers. Like with, I mean, that's a lot of paperwork you say to to fill in. And then I didn't realise about the the standard that the beer had to be at. I I always thought that the Trappist thing was about it had to be like monks and it had to fit into a a, a monk lifestyle in an actual abbey. When and where did the Quality of the beer come into it, and and why is that there? I well,
2: I I think the parts are first. It does have to be under the control of the monks. Mm. So, so you had when I wrote <clears throat> "Brew Like Monk," which is 17 years ago, the um, trap was not assuredly independent. Right. So there was some question. So they they lost the Trapezeal, seal, which they regained. So that that's part of it, and but also while we're talking about, the, they expect a certain quality and a standard to get that seal. You you also have to abide by the other rules, which is that the brewing is taking place under your control. For the most part, the monks are not doing the brewing. Right. So so at, at Spencer, for instance, early on, um, you, you had t- two monks basically doing home brewing, to to. To give that beer to other monks the benedictine monastery for instance the the monk who's and i forget the title within monastery land he's basically the chief operating officer that's his other job Uh, he also teaches at the seminary but he he brews the beer but you know with within the Trappist monasteries in belgium uh for instance orval has never had a monk directly involved with brewing the beer you've had a couple people work like as forklift operators but that doesn't mean that they don't oversee it for, for a while at rochford you, you had a monk doing the brewing not anymore they have a brewing engineer who reports to the monks you know so it goes goes through so lay person in charge of brewing at Westmall, uh, overseen by the monks again um, at West Leprin, the monks are involved right. and they do do the brewing and, and every part of the process. But that's unique. They're, that's the only one in Belgium that's doing that.
0: When you say the monks are overseeing it, like, is it literally just a case of, like, I've got my glass here, like, yeah, that's good. Carry on, you know, because it's like, again, and this ties into the next question, like, about some of the myths surrounding monks and beer, you know, because it's like, I think the the idea of, monks brewing beer and all the rest of it conjures up this image of like you know 9am prayers oh quick time to mash in you know go mash in or oh, let's pray again and all the rest of it and have some solitude time before we put the hop additions in like it, it doesn't kind of sound like that's the vibe going on if i'm right
2: right you know again looking at at the uh, rhythm of any particular brewery no they, they are not involved in the in the brewing process sometimes you know they they might come to assist the bottling, for instance, and and this varies again, because uh, I was there a few months ago at Mount Angel, mm. uh, where where you've got one monk who makes all the decisions, and they're they're not, you know they, they do uh, make whether you want to call it abbey style beer, and and generally there's kind of movement away from calling these Trappist beers, in competitions, to an abbey style, which right. is more general. You know I I I think you notice to differences between the team the two, which has just kind of worked out part of it is because they interact with each other that that the that trappist styles tend to be a, a little more attenuated than the abbey ones mm. the abbey ones may be meant to go to a wider audience so they've got a little sweeter profile uh, that sort of thing but but at at mount angel there's always an assistant when they were first started Going that they had a lay person who come in and helped a little bit. Now in the brewing process, it is only the monks and the bottling and the labeling that all takes place. In their tap room where they serve the beer, then then they have some lay people in there selling the beer, but also monks will come down and interact with the public. So they, they really view this as an outreach where people, and then people are invited to go up the hill because they sit on a hill. But the tap room is down below and say, go up to the hill and learn more about what they're doing. So okay. it becomes a sort of an outreach thing.
0: Okay. What what are some of the myths surrounding monks and beer? For, for example, there's obviously lots of stories out there about monks making beer because water was unsafe and all that, but surely it's easier to just boil water than go through the whole process of making beer. So like, uh, you know, I, I, that might be an actual thing, but you know, like I'm ready to, Debunk that if it's not, but like what what are some of the other sort of myths surrounding monks and beer historically speaking, when it comes to brewing?
2: If if you look back, certainly over time, they were involved in the brewing process. Yeah, you know they they were the ones, and they, they you realize that they they were a, a center of learning, um, and and so those those monasteries and um, so you go back hundreds of years, of course you got to remember there was a great reset with Napoleon where these monasteries were basically wiped out. So they restart again at the beginning of the 19th century. Um, And they are not particularly commercial Um, at, at, at the point in time, which is in the 20th century, they become commercial. Um, That's when they get new recipes. So there's this idea that, that when, when you have, this beer that you've got a four or 600-year-old recipe. Um, you know, most of the recipes uh, go back to um, a few to the 1930s. Right. Or the late 1940s. Wow. Chimay redid everything from 48 on. Um, Rochefort, the same sort of thing. Ro- Rochefort um, is it, relatively close to Chimay. And they were having trouble selling their beer, what they wanted to sell commercially, because it wasn't very good. Um, and, and they actually asked uh, Chimay to quit selling beer in their area. And I think they were essentially <laughs> told, uh, why don't you just make better beer? Um, which, which they did. And they they did their, redid their recipes and, and, and so on. West Flatburn redid their recipes. Uh, um, There's some carryover, uh, but there, some of their stuff is redone Uh less than 30 years ago
0: Hmm.
2: so they they are there's an old tradition there they are not old recipes
0: yeah wow so um, moving on to the the brewing process itself so how, how does the process of making doubles, triples and quadruples differ from making other quote unquote bog standard ales and can you talk us through some of the processes that brewers who make these world famous beers might go through to create this beautiful elixir
2: The key thing, and this goes back, they've always invested in quality. Right. You know, this can mean excellent brewing equipment. A lot of times, which is you look and say they could be cranking out a lot more beer than they are. So they have good quality equipment. They're careful about the quality of their ingredients. Which, you know, so a, a nice selection of barley malt, which, you know, they aren't just taking what shows up at the door. Um, making sure that they have quality hops, which is pretty easy to do in Europe. They are land race hops, so they're an older they they don't have that fruitiness tropical and so on that you get with with newer American varieties mm. um but I think a much of it is philosophical, so making sure that you have beers that are uh, digestible yeah um which it means. It, that means they're well attenuated, but there's there's more to it than that. They do do a step mash, you know, which traditional, almost all of them do a step mash, which is basically step mash laid out by the clerk. In a beer this well attenuated, you can achieve much of this, is my opinion, but also talking to brewers who would be happier to do it that way with a single infusion mash. Yep. But you're going to do that at, at a, a low temperature Um, And pardon me for, this is one I don't know automatically the uh, centigrade amount, but it is, uh, for Fahrenheit, you're gonna match in about 146, which is pretty low because you're seeking good attenuation. Then they're gonna use a fair amount of sugar, which lightens the beer again. Certainly in the United States from the 1990s on, there was a real fear of use of sugar that, that that you would end up with cider. Uh, because people didn't know how to do it right, uh, then one w- one of the myths is that, and I don't know if these products are sold in your parts of the world, but this idea of what's referred to as candy sugar.
0: Yep. Yeah. No, we can get candy sugar.
2: Yeah. So you you, uh, and it, and it has some similarities to invert sugar. The product they call candy sugar was actually syrup, and it was from. Um, a confectionery syrup. In in the United States, you, you had homebrew shops selling these cubes, which are basically brown sugar, which don't have those those same flavor characteristics as the syrup. Just about the time Rue like a monk came out, as I was doing that and learning about the confectionery sugar and talking to somebody who was actually a, just a homebrewing enthusiast and he wanted to be able to get that product he began importing it and sells it broadly and then there's a competing importer so there is you know when we talk about why there aren't more uh, belgian style beers there are enough that they do support things like actually importing the proper ingredients Mm. Uh, in this case that those are the sugars and and stuff like that
0: yeah so with that candy sugar i presume it's used to Mostly up the ABV of a beer and um I mean ha- and lighten the body right, okay. I mean, does it make any flavor contribution? Well, well certainly the dark ones do yep
2: so you know when, when you're get getting that in the dark, um what the trappists are generally using no, it's meant to ferment clean, right you know so so give you higher ABV with a nice finishing so you know where you're going to finish between uh generally between one and two and a half p and and, and these are these are beers that are eight mm. percent uh abv so um you know you you really want them to remain light on the palate yeah uh, so basically Sucrose is sucrose. Right. You know, people are interested in those other things. And, and I'm, you know, I know we're, people make their own sugar at home more like an invert sugar feeling that it, that it adds more complexity and, and things like that. Um, and, and perhaps, you know, it's, it's your ability to, to get some of those Belgian malts. Um, and if you can't get those, if you're using, for instance, Wireman, which makes great malt, yep. um, but it's, you know, a German Pilsner is a different Pilsner malt than if you if you buy something in, in Belgium.
0: Yeah. So the the candy sugar or sucrose, when you talked about the sidery flavour, um because I've I've heard that before and I've I've always felt a little bit like, you know, if, if let's say I've done a mash and I'm doing the runoff and for whatever reason it's you know, my mash efficiency hasn't been great and I'm aiming for a certain ABV you Know part of my brain is like, we'll just put some like dextrose in there and bulk it up. But another part of me is like, no, no, don't do that. Cidery, you know. But I've heard about breweries making double IPAs using like um, glucose right. or whatever. So, like, is that a myth, the whole cidery thing, or is or is it a bit more complex than that? I it's a bit more complex for the simple reason that that I've had those
2: beers from out and I've tasted those beers that are cidery. Mm. So, you're 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 creating these uh, side chain effects, but but it's really easy not to, um, and and I, and part of it is the the quality of your other ingredients. So, uh, you know, if if if, if you were a, a brewer, if you don't mash properly, then you're laying a lousy foundation. I guess that might might be. Mm. way to put it and and to your point about the double ipas that's exactly so that's a lesson that that ipa brewers took from when they began to understand what the belgians were doing with with the use of sugar they realized i can lighten the body in this double ipa Um, and not so, so i don't end up with uh just another a double ipa Particularly if you go back to the early aughts again, many double IPAs were really barley wines.
0: Yeah. Okay. Hoppy barley wines. Yep. So um, I've tried a lot of Abbey style beers over the years from British brewers who haven't quite nailed it. And I'm referring especially to Trapels and Quads on account of uh-huh. the beer tasting what I describe as too hot. Um either that that's too much of a like of an ethanol bite or the way too boozy. For, for any brewers out there who feel inspired to make like a quadruple, for example, like how should they treat their beer to to avoid that, especially in fermentation, so it doesn't have that kind of hot taste, so to speak?
2: Well, I I you know the, <clears throat> first first of all I say that they, they should uh, kind of work their way backward. Um and and figure out where they're going to finish. So, w- what's your final gravity mm. is going to be, and 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 dry is good. Um, and when you do that, and you're getting really good attenuation, you also realize that you can start lower. Um, so within the within the Trappist, until La started starting calling theirs quad, there was no quad. You know, there was. <laughs> Yeah. I mean, of course, they didn't. Th- th- there was triple and double, and then the stronger beer, um, what we now call as you know a strong dark, yep, um, or, or a dark strong, whichever. I always kind of forget the which way to, which word comes first. But, um, but even it, it's something that's that's very strong, like um, West Westleren twelve or Rochefort ten, is th- those. Starting gravities are m- uh, always lower than what people are doing with quads um, and you know i, I, I it, and a, it's funny thing if you think back now now we'll go back to the uh, eighties and nineties and Thomas Hardy and you know how how people were just astonished that this beer could have that much alcohol mm. and then you switch over to the Belgian beers, which had generally. Would sometimes have a little bit more but they but they started at at a lower gravity so that that's your first thing is is don't um uh make life easier for your yeast um that that i'm i'm a big believer that you don't train your yeast people go well i can just do that i can train it like that what you do is figure out what your yeast want and give it to them yep and, and that that means so if 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 it's a mash at a lower temperature, you're making life easier for them. Um, you're not it, you you if you look at the starting the pitching temperature for all, all almost every uh, abbey does. They're relatively low. The temperatures will naturally rise during the fermentation process. West Flatmore doesn't have in their tanks, and there's there's older equipment um, can struggle to keep the temperature down. They don't let it rise too fast. Mm. Um, You know, generally, my suggestion is um, that you're letting it pre-rise, and you're not once you get 80% of your way towards your target. So, in other words, if you're looking at 86% attenuation or something like that. So we'll make it 80. You want better than 80% Uh apparent attenuation. But I'll say that because it's easier to do the calculation that 80% of that is uh, 0.64 apparent attenuation. Once you get to that, then when the temperature ramps up, you are not going to get most of those off flavors. You can get other off flavors because you're lousy the cleanliness and stuff like that. But but when it gets that high, then, then you're not gonna have that ugly yeast growth, uh, which is gonna throw off all, all of those uh, fusel alcohols and stuff like that. Another way back to don't start as high, it's a good way to avoid fusel al- alcohols um, and those, those other uh, fermentation th- things that you know are gonna give you a headache. Um, so starting relatively low, you really, if you start low enough, pitch a good healthy yeast, then a a good amount of healthy yeast, you're naturally just going to ramp up the temp while the temperature goes up. You've got a lot of yeast growth going on, but it is somewhat in control and then you can let it finish at a higher temperature.
0: So just while we're talking about yeast, I'd imagine a lot of brewers out there listening to this um, would reach for a dried yeast to create an Abbey beer style, um, because the as we said earlier, it's it's not like they're smashing up, you know, these kind of beers every week. Um, it's just every so often, you know. So they're not going to rely on a liquid yeast strain. But what what kind of characteristics would a brewer be missing out on using a dried yeast as opposed to like a liquid yeast strain? Uh, when it comes well, to these styles of beers, it, it, personally,
2: it thought never occurred to me to use the dry yeast. So that's always a tricky one. Um, and there are some strains out there, many, many more in the last few years, that will give you the the characteristics that you get in the Belgian or a Trappist beer. Mm. You know, I'm always i i I like there there are many versions of Westmall yeast, which is a great yeast that I like a lot. Yeah. Um, and then the Ashuf yeast, which is not Trappist, but has those same sort of characteristics. So what you know, what, what they produce is okay. Uh, technically, a lot of isoamyl acetate and the and the esters, which gives you a, a banana character. They're they are dead on like wheat beer yeast. Mm-hmm. And then they've also got a lot of 4 vinyl and some related um, compounds, and that's going to give you. So at the extremes, you get a lot of banana and a lot of clove. You're trying to stay away from the extremes. You want to bring it in. So the four BG gives you more pepper, and instead of having all banana, you want to have some other. And this is the same as with wheat beers. Um, so you get underlying. You know, you can get some pear and stuff like that. Mm. So so it doesn't get extreme. It's just boom. Otherwise, it's really singular, and and again you don't if you pitch too low and you hold it low all the way through then that 4vg is going to come across as super clovey it's not that 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 clove was there already but if you don't let the esters come through so that's why you got to let it have that higher finishing temperature uh to create the more esters yeah and so they're big bold and and that's what you get from those so several years ago when i was in Argentina, and somebody's asking me how 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 can he treat his uh, O4 dry yeast uh, to make a Belgian double, and I I simply told him you can't. Um, you know d- those yeast are so t- they're what's known. You know they're beer two yeast, beer one yeast don't uh, have four BG, and or although they can get some I Satan might have something hiding in there guinness has done a lot of research on that but generally beer one not 4bg uh beer two more like a wine yeast or something you would collect in the wild and uh, that's gonna create the 4bg
0: yeah um it's been great to have you on the podcast this week um f- finally i'd love to ask you if you could recommend visiting one trappist brewery which one would it be and why um <laughs> Generally, it's not
2: that you can visit them, so that makes it a little bit of a. um, it,
0: um Can you I mean, not just rock other, up and be all like, "Hey, can I have a look round or going to buy some beers?" Is, uh, is it quite a closed off? I mean, I've never been, and I'd, I'd I'd proper love to go, but is it like quite a closed off thing?
2: Yeah, well, I mean, obviously, Westland, you can go to buy beer from the monks so you get that and 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 they're in serves their beer and and cheese which is also coated with their beer um but i'm i'm just sort of running through them in, in my head each one is different and you know, if you could get inside the brew house in Rochefort, that's beautiful because of the stained glass windows mm. and they do that a little bit more. Um, I, I, each of them is beautiful in their own way to, to visit one because then you get down in the Ardennes to go to a ball which looks magnificent from the outside and has a nice gift shop and and those sorts of things. But, it, but if, if you were a brewer and you have connections to get in and see what they're like, I think you still do West Flettering, Um, because it's still got this old sitting on a farm feel for it the brew house is at one end um, and they do open fermentation.
0: Wow. Well, thanks for being on the show today. It's, it's been really great sure. to have you on. Um, how, well, thanks how, for inviting me. How, how can people read more of your thoughts? Have you got like a blog um, or anything like that? Or
2: Yeah, well, I... <laughs> If your name is Hieronymus, which is hard enough for people (laughs) to spell and pronounce, and then you come up with it, you name your blog Appalachian Beer, meaning the importance of beer from a place, and Appalachian spelled A P P E L L A T I O N B E E R -R 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 dot com, then that takes you to my blog where I don't blog nearly often enough. If you want to know more about hops, at the blog at the top, there's a thing that says Hop Queries and that's a monthly newsletter. So you don't have to do anything. It just shows up once a month in your uh, email box and that gets uh,
0: about a couple of thousand words. Oh, nice. What, so what, what kind of things can people expect to get in the, that newsletter? Oh, and the hops newsletter? Well, the,
2: you know, there's so much uh, new products. So the moving on to things like cryo hops, yep. um, new hop varieties, um, harvest reports, it's going to be a good year in New Zealand, it looks like, probably maybe above average in Australia as well. Um, everybody's excited about the new hop from New Zealand, Nectaron. Uh, there's still not a lot of it, 30 hectare last year was urine acre land, right? So mm-hmm. that would be um, and th- anyway, there'll be 62 this year, so that'd be about 150 acres of hops, much much of which will be processed in the UK. Um yes. <laughs> uh totally, totally natural solutions um which is actually located in kent um so they they'll turn that into oil their uh, their thinking is that that's more environmentally friendly uh so you know a potpourri of things like that amazing
0: brill well thank you okay
2: well thank you i appreciate it
0: Well, it's that time again at the bar for another week of the Hot 4 podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on iTunes, Spotify and all other good platforms. Be sure to visit hotforward.beer to find out how we can help you get ahead in the brewing and beer business. We make your beer look as good as it tastes and we help you brew up a better business through branding, marketing and consultancy. Remember to follow us on social media at Hot Forward Beers and for another week, cheers.